morning. Peace be with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7, beginning in verse 15. Uh, before I begin, I just want to express gratitude, one, to our elders and pastors for allowing me, uh, a wannabe preacher, to learn this craft um, and just the grace that this church has shown me and uh, how, how as I've been learning to communicate and uh, becoming a better Bible teacher. Also, I want to express gratitude um, for all the help that my family has received over the last several weeks. It's been a busy several weeks. We've moved to Middletown. We're official residents uh, in town. So, so grateful for all the help that came from that. We had people moving furniture, putting it together for us, helping us move up here has been such a gift. People fixing things at our house. God bless Corey Manning. And... and um, We've also invited a, a little girl into the world named Lottie, Lottie Rose, and um, she's been a gift. So it's been, like I said, a busy several weeks. People have provided meals for us, and we have felt um, the love of the church. And so we want to express gratitude towards that. Um, as we dive into the Word today, would you, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's Word today? Beginning in verse 15, we're going to go through 29. Hear this word of the Lord. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than the ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Several years ago, on a Sunday like this, it was a beautiful morning, and my wife and I, we had no kids at this time, and we were waking up early to go to the church that we were at at that time to serve as greeters. And I just remember it being particularly nice this day. It wasn't too hot. It was nice. Walking into church, and as I walk in, there's a, an elder there, 
greeting me. And this elder was always pleasant, the most, one of the most positive people I ever have known, and he seemed very uncomfortable and kind of down. So I was kind of alarmed by that. And as I'm walking in, he stops me. And in that moment, he informed me that my friend had just died on his way to work. He was a firefighter in Cincinnati, and on his way in, he was riding a motorcycle because it was such a beautiful day, and a car crossed four lanes of unimpeded, four lanes in traffic, and hit him, and he died at the scene. My friend was 33 years old. The day before that, he celebrated his only son's first birthday party. It was the youngest of his three children. He had three kids total, but he just celebrated his son's birthday party the night before. He, was, he struggled in, in many ways because he was very open about who he was, but he was a faithful man. He was a good husband. He was a great father. He was good to his kids. He was an outstanding employee. He was a faithful friend. He would, he would tell people when they needed to change but he would also love them when they needed to be cared for. He was faithful to the church. He led small groups. He discipled lots of men. He shared the gospel with anyone who would hear it and anyone who didn't. He was good. And I was changed by knowing him and his family. And he died at 33 on his way to work. When I heard the news, I was sad, as, I, as you might expect when you hear that kind of thing out of nowhere on a beautiful Sunday morning. But uh, as the, the following week would come up, that, that sadness would turn to anger and frustration because he lived out a great story for his life. But I knew so many other people who lived out a different kind of story. Many people I knew were living long, prosperous lives. And they were extremely selfish with their possessions. They were negligent and sometimes even harmful to their children. Unfaithful in their relationships and their marriages. They cared nothing of others. They cared nothing about God even going as far as to set not even acknowledging God's existence and going as far as to say he doesn't exist at all. And I could tell you, I just was left with the question, how is this fair? Are you serious? God, why would you take this man? And so many other people are still here. I'm sure many of you have pondered this. And the preacher ponders it as well. Beginning in verse 15, he says this, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This message is so jarring to the preacher. This experience that he's seen is so jarring that he has to talk about it, and he has to address it. So what advice does he give all of us to this perplexing reality of people who are righteous dying young and people who are wicked prolonging their life he actually tells us not to be too righteous. Verse 16 says this, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself 
too wise. And he even follows it up with this question to drive his point home. Why should you destroy yourself? And you hear this and you're like, hold up. This is the opposite of everything I've heard in church my entire life. This is the opposite of the piety that has been peddled in Western Christianity and all of evangelicalism today. And if you're into church history like I am, if you're, if you're a church history buff, there have been whole denominations and Christian movements around this idea of pursuing holiness and being righteous and pursuing righteous living. Whole movements. And the preacher's like, no, don't do that to yourself. And then to add to his confusion, he follows that statement and he tells us not to be overly wicked. In verse 17, it says this, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. And then he adds the question, Why should you die before your time? Now, this makes sense to us, talking about wickedness, especially for good church, church-going people like us, right? Where we know about not pursuing wickedness. This is what every Christian should, should not pursue. It's like what we've been told, and our lives shouldn't be spent like this. And I totally agree with that. But then to add to that lack of clarity, he says that the only way that we can avoid these two parallels, don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wicked, he tells us in verse 18 that it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come from both of them. How do you avoid over-righteous living and over-wicked living? Well, he says to fear God. You're like, okay. That's the only way that we can overcome this injustice of life and death that we see is to fear God. But what does it mean to fear God? It is important to note that there's an aspect of fearing God that is terrifying, To fall into the judgment of God is scary because he's holy, he's good, and he's powerful. And this should give us pause. Hebrews 10.31 states it like this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But there are two ways to look at at the fear of God. There are two ways of looking at this. And the first way is punitive. What we just talked about in Hebrews 10 is dealing with this wrath mindset that God is going to punish evil, and it is something very real that we should consider, this punitive relationship with the fear of God. But the second is a little different. It's like familial, like a family. This is like looking at the relationship of a parent and a child. Some of you parents are like, yes, I love when my children fear me, but that's a whole other story. Or better, how about a father and his children? R.C. Sproul, in an article about, the, about fearing God, R.C. Sproul was a famous pastor, and he, he put these two things in perspective when he's looking at the fear of God. And he actually gets this from Martin Luther, for those of you who are familiar But he defines fearing God in these two forms, punitive and familial. And he defines the fear of God like this. 
I think this distinction is helpful because the basic meaning of fearing the Lord that we read about in Deuteronomy is also in the wisdom literature, where we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The focus here is on a sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. That's often lacking in contemporary evangelical Christianity. We are invited to call him Abba, Father, and to have a personal have the personal intimacy promised to us, but still, we're not flippant with God. We're always to maintain a healthy respect and adoration for Him. The preacher is telling us that the only way to overcome the unjust living and dying of the righteous and the wicked is to have a real awe and reverence and adoration in our relationship to God. But why is fearing God so essential to overcoming all of this stuff, rather than just pursuing over-righteousness or forgetting it all and pursuing overly wicked life. Well, I think the preacher is keen on something that both the overly righteous and the overly wicked are in danger. I think he's saying here in this passage, beware. And there, if you pursue being over-righteous, you, are, you, can, you actually can tread down a path that is not good. And if you pursue overly wicked life, the same thing. What are you in danger of, though? Well, the overly righteous person is in danger of becoming self-righteous in their own piety. They're in danger of becoming narcissistic. They're not aware of themselves. The overly righteous person experiences constant anxiety about the critique and cursing of others. Their presence is often a burden, and they kill relationships with constant critique. That's, what I, that's part of my story. They are constantly working and working to have superior, superiority over others around them. And in worst case, they become the pinnacle of what it means to be righteous. Ultimately, they have no fear of God because they know that they measure up to God and even define what his righteousness may require in their own terms. Beware of this. The overly wicked person is also in danger. They're in danger of taking advantage of those around them, using people for their own gain and discarding them after their use has expired. They take no reverence in who made them and abuse their bodies for personal pleasure. They live for themselves and destroy relationships because of their own self-sabotage. They live recklessly with their life and they see no consequences. Like the overly righteous... They have no need to fear God, but for different reasons. They do not fear God because they are their own God, and everything is at their disposal for their own gain and pleasure. So what is this passage is telling us is that the overly righteous and the overly wicked are, are in extreme danger of having no fear of God in their life. But the preacher does tell us what fearing God can do in this paradoxical reality of life and death. I have three things for you, and it's right in the text. The first one, those who fear God will receive strength from wisdom. In verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers in a city. The second, fearing God gives an understanding of their status. How could we ever be more righteous than God? Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And the third thing, 
Fearing God gives you freedom from the anxieties of others. I love this part. Do not take heart of all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You know, or your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Hey, don't worry about what other people say, because you know you talk about other people. It's, it's, it's right. It's real. Even the preacher in verse 24 gives us a glimpse at his own efforts to live in wisdom and righteousness. And he acknowledges himself and his inability to navigate this realm of righteousness and wickedness outside of fearing God. And he comes to the conclusion, and it was far from him. It was far from him, his pursuits in this. But then the preacher doubles down towards the end of the passage. He doubles down and he gives a summary statement of what he has experienced in these paradoxical realities of life and death from his own experience. He says this in verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. Here he's literally telling us that his pursuits to navigate the nature of life, he gives himself both to wisdom and righteousness as well as wickedness and foolishness. He tries both of them. And then he explains that after the pursuits, he pursues overly righteous living, he pursues overly wicked living, but then in verse 26, he finds something, has something more bitter than death. What? What could be worse than death? What could be worse than righteous people dying young and wicked people living long lives and prospering? What could be worse than the unfairness of living and dying? What could be worse than that? Well, I think he says this. I think he actually learns that all people are wicked. You, me, all of us are wicked. But he tells us in a really strange way. In verse 26, this is what he says is worse than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. And he ends the verse by saying, He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. There have been many interpretations of this text. Many interpretations of this passage. And many scholars think that this is a literal woman which has led to all manner of terrible practice in the church. It's not saying all women are evil here. That's not what he's saying here. He's actually doing something that we see based in other passages in wisdom literature is that he is using an illustration about wisdom and foolishness. And it's really, really safe to say that this is what he's doing here. The use of a woman as an illustration, isn't uncommon because it's personification. It's they're attributing wisdom as a person. Where righteousness is always equal to a wise and prudent woman, and wickedness is, is equivalent to an evil, seductive woman. And it was a very Jewish way to think about this, has masculine and feminine concepts. It's, it's, it's all over their language. Masculine concepts, in, in, when they're using illustrations, are often seen as men. 
feminine concepts are always seen as a woman. This is why cities are, are referred to as, as women. They always say God will protect her. We see, sing this in songs from the psalms that we see. And it's no different from wisdom. Wisdom is a feminine noun. And so wisdom and wickedness are always posed as women that are opposite of each other. In, in Psalms 7 and 8, we're not going to go there, but if you have time, look at Psalms 7 and 8. In these passages, you see this personification of a, a woman who represents wisdom and a woman who represents wickedness. And in that, men are called to cling, or mankind, I should say, are called to cling to the woman who represents wisdom because it will give them life and lead them to well-being. And things will go well with them because wisdom will give them strength. While the other woman, who represents wickedness, is enticing, seductive, calling out to him in the streets, and she goes out of her way to ruin the lives of people. And this wicked woman is everywhere. The preacher is explaining that he has spent his life trying to add to his life. And it is neither over-righteousness nor the pursuit of wickedness. Because he finds out that there's wickedness everywhere. And he even drives this point home in verses 28 and 29. He says this, One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I have found, that God made man upright, and he has sought out many schemes. Using high, like this, this exaggerated statement, he's saying, hey, I may have found one man out of a thousand that's right, but that man pursued the wickedness. That person pursued this wicked, this woman that represents wickedness. What's he saying here? The thing that's worse than death is that everybody pursues wickedness. And I found this out. We're all wicked. And the thing is, it's hard about this passage, is that God is not to blame here. He says that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And he even goes back to creation. He said, God made man, Adam upright, as we read before, in his own image. Good, very good. But we're responsible because we seek out wickedness. We seek out sin. Every one of us, sinners and we are wicked. There's no one righteous. The overly righteous person fails to see this, and the overly wicked doesn't care. Paul, in Romans 3.10-12, 3, he, he quotes Psalm 14 here, and he puts it this way, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The preacher is giving us an insight into the complexity and paradox of life and death. He calls the overly righteous person and the overly wicked person the same. He's putting them all in the same boat. All of us here are in the same boat, and there's blood on all of our hands. No one can add or take away from their days. Because at the root, all men are wicked, all people are wicked and deserving 
of death has the penalty. It makes no difference whether you're super righteous or super wicked. We are all wicked and we're caught up in many schemes. And the only way that we can overcome any of this is to have fear and reverence for God. So what do we do with this? I was racking my brain of, well, how do we apply this? And my answer is, I don't really know. It's going to be different for everyone in this room. It's going to look different. The only thing I, I, I could do was boil down to two questions that I think are desperate and of the utmost importance for all of us to answer. Two questions. The first question is, am I aware of myself? Do I have a tendency to pursue being overly pious or overly wicked? And what does that do to the people around me? What does that do to my relationships? Do I see the fruit of that? Am I even aware of myself? Second question. Do I fear God? Do I have an awe, reverence, closeness, and interest in living a life pleasing to my Heavenly Father? The preacher is outlining a way of living that gives an understanding of who we are and who God is. This causes us not to think of ourselves as righteous, nor to pursue wickedness, but rather walk relationally with God in awe and reverence of Him. This is the only way that we can navigate the paradoxical relationship of life and death. Now, our Lord Jesus would also talk about these two topics. He would talk about wickedness and he would talk about righteousness, but it was, it was the Lord's you know, tendency to use a story. We, we navigate and we traffic in stories. They're our human expression, so it's fitting that he would speak this way. And if you've heard me speak in the last you know, two or three times I've spoken, I cannot get away from this story. It is everywhere in my life right now. And you may be familiar with it. It's found in Luke 15. It's a story of a man who had two sons, often referred to as the prodigal son. Two sons, one father. One son comes to his father, and he asks him for his inheritance. He says, can I have it? The father gives him the inheritance, and he goes and he spends it on all manner of wickedness. He goes to a far-off place, far away from his father, and he spends his entire inheritance on wickedness. And what is he left with? He's left with nothing. He's sitting and eating with pigs. So he comes to himself, and he goes to his father. And the wicked son comes to his father, trying to figure out how he's going to be part of the family again, be in the household again, even saying, I'll be a servant. And the father sees him coming from far away. He sees the wicked one and he runs to him. And he gives him sandals, a robe, and a ring. And he calls him a son again. And he has a party, a big party for him and celebrates the wicked son's return. Likewise, the other son is there. This one is pursuing over-righteous living. And he's only left there to be bitter, 
and angry and frustrated at his wicked brother's return and restoration. But he's also called by his father to join the party. And he's reminded that he has always had the gifts of his father at his disposal. And that the father is always with him. You have two brothers here, one pursuing overly righteous living, one brother pursuing overly wicked living, and a father calling to both of them at the same time. And this, Jesus tells us, is what the kingdom of God is like. If you're like me, you tend to be like one of these brothers. What the preacher does not have eyes to see is that the love of God is offered to both of them, both the righteous and wicked, and neither one is righteous. Neither one has the Father, and the Father is calling to them. Both are called to intimacy, friendship, reverence for their generous Father so that they can enjoy the undeserved gifts that he is giving them. It is Christ who is the perfect Son. He was perfect, and he and the Father are one. And he lived out perfect reverence of the Father. And he gives us a right understanding of who we are, and it puts us in perspective that we can only view anything that he gives us as a gift. But that overly righteous living nor overly wicked living are going to add to our life. We are called today to have a fear of God as our Father who is loving us and he is calling us to him. As we come to the table, as we come to communion during this time, we're reminded of the cross. We're reminded that the cross is actually the meeting place of the righteous and the wicked where Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed, this being a reminder of that, at the cross, you see righteous people cursing the Lord on the cross. You also see wicked people cursing Jesus at the cross. You also see people who were made right mourning Jesus' death because they knew it was for them. And you even see a wicked thief on the cross cry out to him and say, Lord, save me. And he's like, you'll be with me in paradise. This is the beauty of the cross because it humbles the overly righteous and it humbles the overly wicked. The overly righteous sees Jesus on the cross and says, you know what, I'm not that good. And how could I ever be that good? And he still died for me. And the overly wicked person is, saying, is humbled because they're saying, I don't deserve this. There's nothing that I've done that's good. But this is the beauty of the gospel and the mystery of it. Wherever brother you are, whatever you're pursuing, there's a father calling to you to be a child of God, to fear and walk in reverence of him so you can navigate these hardships of life. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. I pray that you would help us to, to live out what it means to fear you. Help us to repent in ways it's going to look different for all of us here. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are pursuing an over-righteous living, and I pray for my brothers and sisters who are pursuing wickedness. I pray that you would 
lead them all to you, that they would walk in fear and reverence and relationship to you as their father. Pray that you would help us to live this out today. Thank you for your body broken, your blood shed for us that we remember as we take communion today. Please bless our day in Christ's name. Amen.